Welcome to episode four of MCV Cast. We are recording on Thursday, April 23rd. At this very moment, the price of oil is back into positive territory, but barely. Oil is right now at $16.85 per barrel. At one point this week, it came in at negative $37.63 per barrel. And yet construction of the controversial Keystone XL pipeline is still very much underway in northeastern Montana. I'm joined as always by MCV's Deputy Director Whitney Tani and Political Director Jake Brown. And today we'll be hearing from two folks with New Approach Montana, which is working very hard to try to get a measure on the November ballot that would boost funding for state public lands. But first, some news headlines, beginning with a look back to something we take very seriously around here, Earth Day. Happy 50th anniversary of Earth Day. We are super excited because we launched a video with Forward Montana Foundation in celebration of this day by doing some virtual organizing to give platform to our concerned high school students across the state. And this project came about because we initially had planned a panel, which would have been fun and great here in Bozeman. Um, But after the COVID pandemic started, we had to make a real quick pivot to go digital. And if anything, I think what's most exciting about this is that the video is having more reach um, and more impact than it would have otherwise. So we asked students to submit selfie shot videos, and then we edited it into one snappy video that we are now hosting on YouTube, in addition to our social media handles. My name is Taylor. Hi, my name is Robbie Brown. Hi, my name is Catherine. My name is Zara. I live in Missoula, Montana. The other piece that makes this project so awesome is that it is a unified message about how our youth is feeling about our public lands and the climate change crisis and putting their outdoor heritage and their futures at risk. I'm from Helena, Montana. My name is Maisie and I live in Bozeman. I'm Helena. I'm from Billings, Montana. And I think climate change is important because it affects what kind of recreational activities future generations will be able to experience. My name is Gillian. I'm from Missoula and I'm here today to talk about public lands. Now Montana has 38 million acres of public lands that provide over $7 billion a year in revenue for the state. Now, not only are our public lands key in our economy, but they're also key in defining our identity as a state. I've spent my entire life enjoying the outdoors of Montana. If the global climate crisis is not addressed, these spaces I've come to love will be drastically altered or destroyed in the near future. All these kids are super articulate, and it gives me and I think the rest of our team a lot of hope that this is where our state is going with these young advocates um, up and coming. Yeah, we definitely hope to be doing more of these in the future. So even though Earth Day 2020 is behind us, we invite all young people in Montana to continue sending us your video messages. Just kick them over to mcv at mtvoters.org. We want to bring you up to speed on two developments that happened just before Earth Day on Tuesday, April 21st. Both of them, I'm sorry to report, are setbacks to the conservation movement. First, the Environmental Protection Agency on Tuesday finalized its elimination of the Navigable Waters Protection Rule. We mentioned this when the process was first starting to happen, and now it's official. And this means important safeguards for at-risk ecosystems and drinking water no longer exist. And I would just add that this is particularly important here for us in Montana because it puts our wetlands at major risk um, because our 
wetlands are part of America's duck factory, also known as the Prairie Pothole Region, um, which is something that I used to work on a lot in my old gig with Ducks Unlimited. It's not only putting those ducks at risk, but it's also putting all of our fauna and flora at risk that also are reliant on wetlands. And it is something that folks should be very concerned about. There's a link to this story if you want to read more about it in the show notes. Also on Tuesday, again, the eve of Earth Day, Senator Steve Daines joined 10 other senators, all Republicans, in signing a letter. We have it in our show notes. And if you're listening via YouTube, the letter is on your screen. It asks Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell to make it easier for junk-rated oil companies to qualify for federal stimulus programs. One company that stands to benefit from the senator's request Occidental Petroleum, whose debt was downgraded too soon to qualify for major federal lending programs. You don't have to peel this onion very far back to see that Occidental Petroleum contributed over $233,000 in the last electoral cycle, overwhelmingly to Republicans, including $2,500 to Senator Steve Daines of Montana. Speaking of Senator Daines, we want to share a quick update on the Great American Outdoors Act, which would fully fund the Land and Water Conservation Fund at $900 million per year, something we very much support. This is a bill Senator Daines and Senator Tester introduced a few weeks back with a whole lot of fanfare. The legislation has not gone anywhere since its splashy introduction. That's understandable given the focus on the economy and the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But we do want to point out that on this show, we have now talked about two letters from Senator Steve Daines in recent weeks asking for protections for oil and gas companies, and not one single letter, as far as we know, about the importance of fully funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund, something he and his close allies are very good at saying he supports without much action behind it. For example, this clip from Senator Daines' social media feed. Senator Daines has been a champion for permanent full funding, uh, $900 million. Remember, when it comes to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, we at MCV think champions, not just people who say they're champions. Political director Jake Brown is tracking some other political developments this week. Yeah, thanks, Murph. Um, And those are some great reminders. I think that uh, despite people being stuck in their homes, a lot of the world has just continued to keep moving. For example, here in Montana, some of our candidates for office sure haven't slowed down their fundraising numbers. Um, And we wanted to cover some of those highlights. Uh, For our U.S. Senate race, Governor Steve Bullock recently announced a monstrous fundraising quarter of $3.1 million dollars after just getting in the U.S. Senate race in a few weeks, um, compared to Steve Daines raising $1.3 million for the quarter, Bullock has clearly picked up some fundraising steam. It's important to note that despite Bullock outraising Daines in this quarter, Daines still has about $5.6 million cash on hand. So I think for Bullock at this point, hopefully he can keep up this uh, fundraising pace and uh, catch up to Daines' uh, war chest. Moving on to our other federal race, MCV endorsed candidate Kathleen Williams had another big quarter as well, raising about um, just under half a million, 475K. That's actually twice as much as her closest Republican challenger brought in, Matt Rosendale. To date, Kathleen has raised about $1.6 million, which I think is actually one of the, for a Democratic candidate running for the U.S. House of Montana, I think she's raised the most at this point in Montana history. So that's pretty exciting. On the other side of the ticket for Republicans in the U.S. House race, Matt Rosendale kind of leads the fundraising pack. 
He's only raised about 248K this quarter and has raised about $1.3 million total. It's also important to note that there's five other Republicans in that race, but none have raised more than 50K this quarter. So clearly Matt Rosendale is likely to be the Republican opponent in that race. Moving on to our highly competitive gubernatorial race, Congressman Greg Gianforte raised 100K in his most recent fundraising quarter, but also loaned himself 500K, half a million. At this point, he has totally eclipsed his Republican opponents in the fundraising game. And I think to date, Greg Gianforte has given over a million dollars to his gubernatorial campaign. Clearly, Gianforte has the ability and the capacity to self-finance his campaign. In 2016, he spent over $5 million of his own money trying to buy that election. So he's going to be a formidable opponent in November. On the Democratic side of the ticket, Mike Cooney and Whitney Williams are both relatively close with uh, total funds raised, kind of ranging from three quarters of a million to 800K. For the primary, Cooney has the advantage for cash on hand that he can spend in the primary, but I think it's still going to be a close race. Great. Thanks, Jake. And before we get to today's guest, one more thing to flag about how you can take action on the Keystone XL pipeline we mentioned. As we speak, construction is officially underway on that 1,200-mile pipeline in northeastern Montana, despite social distancing and stay-at-home orders for the whole state. We've organized a petition that you can sign. The link is in the show notes asking our elected leaders and leaders in Alberta to halt construction until, at the very least, we return to some normalcy. Lots of people are working on the pipeline right now in a part of the state that is rural and medically underserved on a pipeline whose oil was worth negative money this week. By the way, last week we heard from former Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer, and we'll soon hear from him again to get his take on the Keystone XL pipeline. Our guests today have been in the news last week, and they'll be in in the news again next week. Pepper Peterson and Ted Dick are with New Approach Montana, and both of them calling in from Helena. Hi, guys. Hey, how are you? Tell us about New Approach Montana and the initiatives you're trying to get on the November ballot. Well, this is Pepper, and um, Murph, I don't know if you knew or not, but uh, I worked for MCV when I met Ted Dick. So it's interesting, full circle, to come back around and be on MCV's podcast. Uh, with Ted Dick so many years later. That was in the 0304 campaign. Um, I know you had Brian Schweitzer as your guest last week. And so um, it's uh, it's nice to be here with you so many years later, again, with MCV. And um, with Ted Dick as well. And we're with New Approach Montana these days. And we're a political campaign supporting two complementary 2020 ballot initiatives to legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana for adult use. Um, and uh, the two initiatives um, are unique. Uh, one initiative is a statutory measure that would legalize, regulate, and tax adult use marijuana in Montana. The second is a constitutional amendment that would give the state legislature the authority to set the minimum age of marijuana consumption at 21. And Pepper, can you tell us why those two need to be paired together in order to make this work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a it's a Montana constitutional issue. Uh, the Montana Constitution says that you're an adult at age 18 for all purposes except for uh, as it relates to the consumption of alcohol. And so what we're going to go and uh, attempt to do is put two words 
in the Montana Constitution so that that uh, exemption for um, alcohol also applies to the consumption of marijuana so that we could set that age at 21. And one of the reasons that we're following New Approach Montana pretty closely is because of the tax revenue uh, that would be generated by the regulated sale of, of marijuana. It would benefit public lands. Can you tell us about that specifically and, and other places where that tax revenue may end up going? Yeah, sure. We produced a fiscal note and the governor's office also produced a fiscal note. And uh, the governor's office estimated that Within five years of the program's beginnings, we would see around $48 million a year in revenue from marijuana taxes and fees under an adult use program with a 20% sales tax. Um, and that's what we've proposed is a 20% sales tax. We've uh, proposed sending those marijuana tax dollars to various programs in Montana, funds for veterans, healthcare, education, infrastructure, and of course, conservation efforts. A substantial amount of our funds are designated to go to public lands and um, to make sure that Montanans can continue to enjoy our public lands. The the Habitat Montana program is going to receive um, a substantial portion of the funds that we've asked to be allocated to conservation. And we think that Habitat Montana program is just a stellar um, program uh, in Montana. And we think it's the model for private land conservation and it's voluntary private land conservation that benefits Montana farms and ranches. You know, this is a very grassroots approach to public lands management, to saving family farms, um, to putting a funding mechanism in place that guarantees that even through difficult economic times, like we're facing family farms and ranches can continue to operate. And we can also increase the public's access to our public uh, treasures, uh, to our rivers, to our public lands, to our trails. You know, that's directly reflective of the values that we as Montanans share. And that's why you see it in the initiative. You know, folks say, why have you got so much conservation funding in a marijuana initiative? You know, there's a lot of funding for uh, like I said, veteran services and infrastructure and, you know, for the local municipalities. But if you look at where we allocate funding, it's in support of things that, that we love as Montanans. And it's reflective of those values that support public lands and public waters. And, I, you know, I spend a month out of my year on the Missouri River myself. And so I highly value um you know, my access to those public resources. And so that's why you see in a marijuana initiative so much conservation funding is because, you know, it's reflective of the values of the people that live in Montana. Right. And to be clear on the the funding, we're looking at 49.5% of that tax revenue going to conservation efforts. But uh, the, the biggest chunk of that would be directly to Habitat Montana. Right now, you are putting these uh, initiatives on the ballot. What does that require? I know you are out uh, looking to gather signatures. Clearly, there are some challenges with the COVID-19 pandemic. So what are the next steps for you and what are you looking to do? Well, right now, we are... Um Obviously, we're, we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. An initiative takes a, a lot of work um, that the public never sees. Um, 
regarding the petitions and, you know, the legal uh, complexities uh, related to the relationship with the Secretary of State's office and the Attorney General's office and, you know, how the initiative moved from a draft um, through those offices to a final approval process at the Secretary of State's office, um, where you look at the physical petition itself and say, you know, is this how we want to present this? And is this okay with the Secretary of State's office? And that's the part of the process that we're at. You know, we were, we were just about ready to gather signatures when the coronavirus pandemic really started to hit the U.S. And so, you know, we were we were at the part of the process where we were going to decide, you know, what does this look like? And, you know, does it have a barcode? How wide are these margins? Um, there's a lot of technical details that you go through. Um, but wham, you know, here comes the coronavirus and here comes a, a lot of complications and, um, you know, people are getting sick and people are being put in the ICU and, and Montanans are dying of the coronavirus. And so it became impossible to gather signatures uh, in person. And so we began to look at electronic signature gathering and other methodologies for signature gathering. We also put together a legal response, you know, a question to the state about gathering signatures electronically and also some considerations for extending the date for signature gathering. Um, We asked that um, we were able to use electronic signatures and we essentially took the Secretary of State to court to force an action to accept electronic signatures for qualifying an initiative for the ballot and or uh, to extend the date out until August the 3rd um, for signature gathering. And so you will be in court, or at least the judge will be hearing this case, I know, next uh, next week. But what what is the best case scenario, um, and what are you looking to have happen? And the third question might be, what is the timeline uh, for signature gathering, assuming that you do get an extension on, on the date? So currently, the deadline for gathering signatures is June 19th in Montana. And so ideally, I mean, ideally, the the weather would change tomorrow and the coronavirus would go away, you know, um, and or, you know, a phased reentry into public life allows for in-person signature gathering. That's always the preferred methodology. But, you know, in case those things don't happen as quickly as they might need to, um, you know, consider that we could be under some sort of coronavirus social distancing measures well into June perhaps into the summer. Is it feasible that we could gather those signatures electronically? That's what we've asked the judge for, is you know, to say, yes, you can go out there and you can gather signatures electronically. You can verify those identities using the technologies that are currently being used for other electronic signature verification in court actions and in legal contracts in Montana and elsewhere. And what does electronic signature gathering look like in a perfect world? I think in a perfect world, you know, it's very secure, first thing. And and that's everybody's concern with any electronic voting or electronic signature gathering or even electronic notarization of any document, you know, is that it's a safe and secure process because, you know, there's there's considerations with um, organized crime and there's considerations with foreign interference in elections and there's considerations for any number of things that, you know, a judge might say, 
you know, it's dangerous to allow electronic approval of a document that is of such importance. And so we've looked for a system that was in use in Montana. And Montana has electronic signature verification as part of its Electronic Signature Act that was passed a few years back that allows for, you know, using electronic signatures um, for contracts, using electronic signatures um, for uh, accepting government funds, using those for evidence in court cases. Uh, electronic signatures are admissible as evidence in Montana courtrooms. And so considering the extreme danger to the public that physically distributing a petition might bring forward, we asked for that emergency relief that we could use signature gathering, not not permanently. We're not asking to change the initiative process permanently. We just want to use this in this emergency situation. And um, we all hope that this is a one-time thing. I'm not sure that it is. But considering that no one could have anticipated that this was going to happen, we think that that justifies a certain amount of relief from the courts, and that's why we asked for it. Ted, in a perfect world, what does the campaign look like, assuming you uh, have everything you need to move forward? What do people need to know as you launch? Well, Aaron, we'd like to do this conventionally. You know, we'd like to go out in person and gather signatures. But, you know, like Pepper said, unfortunately, the coronavirus uh, right now prevents us from doing that. And we're seeking legal remedies. So assuming that we get uh, relief from the courts, we've got a team of experts that are going to build a infrastructure to get those electronic signatures and hopefully get qualified by June 19th. Or if the court gives us uh, some extra time, uh, we'll use that time to, to get signatures. The constitutional initiative requires 50,000 signatures and the statutory initiative requires uh, 25. So we've got some work to do to get those. Question for you guys, why now? Why this year? Why is the time right to make this law? Pepper and I discussed this last year because I think public sentiment has changed for the positive and other states have passed it, Washington, Oregon, California, and then recently in Michigan and there's been other successful efforts on the East Coast. We both saw a trend and we thought it could be successful here. There's a thriving medical marijuana market here in Montana. We just thought that this was the perfect time. Last question for you guys. Any misconceptions about this or the policy at hand that you'd like to clear up that you're dealing with on the ground? We've seen a change in attitude um, about marijuana generally. Um, it's been declared an essential item in Montana. And so uh, we think people's uh, attitudes about it are changing and they're definitely looking more towards the tax revenue now and thinking we're going to be facing economic downturn. And so it would be nice to you know have an additional $50 million or so a year going into the state budget. I don't see a lot of other places for new revenue in Montana. And so I think that's the attitude change that, that I've seen largely. And some of the misconceptions um, that exist around marijuana, you know, those continue to exist. And, you know, our polling and um, general, you know, consensus around the issue says that, you know, you're going to see some objection to to marijuana legalization from voters over 70 
and a few specific demographics. And otherwise, you know, you're seeing a lot more acceptance out there. We've seen that evidence to Montana on the ground uh, when we were visiting with people. Um, and we've seen that change of attitude towards more concern about where the tax revenue is going to go and how much we're going to get in light of the economic downturn that we're going to face because of the coronavirus. Pepper Peterson, political director and Ted Dick, campaign manager of New Approach Montana. You can find them at newapproachmt.org. Ted, Pepper, appreciate your time. That was great talking to you, Mark. Yeah, thank you. We do want to note that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Montana Conservation Voters, its staff, or its board of directors. But you can always know what we're up to by following us on our social media handles, all at MT Voters. Thanks, Whitney. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, YouTube. Check us out. And as always, send us any tips, requests, or feedback to mcv at mtvoters.org. And as always, we need to plug mtvoters.org slash donate. Your financial support goes a long way in supporting the work we do, and we value every penny of it. Thank you. Today, we want to leave you with a clip courtesy of Yellowstone Public Radio and reporter Jess Sheldahl, who recently interviewed Congressman Greg Gianforte. The congressman is now a candidate for governor, of course, and we'll set this up by reminding listeners that Congressman Gianforte does not publicly advise any of his meetings in advance, and he has yet to find the courage to speak to his constituents directly. So we'll let this clip speak for itself. It's difficult to talk about your current campaign without addressing the most infamous moment of your campaign for the U.S. House of Representatives when you assaulted a reporter the night before the election. You pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault in relation to the incident in 2017. How has this moment affected you personally and as a politician? Well, I'll say we've done over 200 events since I announced for the governor's office last June, uh, and uh, it doesn't come up. 